Today I'm going to be doing a little bit of a less organized episode. I'm going to be kind of discussing a number of different points, different issues, and talking about some stuff going on uh, with the channel, with my own work that I'm doing uh, tangential to this podcast and the Substack. Um, the most pressing thing I want to talk about uh, to, to start off with is the upcoming WHO, World Health Organization, Pandemic Preparedness Treaty that's looking to get... Uh, ran through on a technocratic level, on a regulatory governance level, and what that uh, promises is to basically usurp the the sovereign decision making of individual com- countries that are participants in the WHO. And so, in the future, when there's a ne- another pandemic, the a global response will be coordinated at the level uh, at an international level. Uh, spearheaded by the WHO, and they'll be able to mandate the policies that uh, the countries who ratify this treaty will have to abide by. So, you know, the problem with this is, is that, well, there's many problems, but one of the, one of the main ones is that they can now mandate, potentially mandate vaccines at an international level, and the mandates could come at a a point of compulsion, like, uh, physical force. Um, and so we all know the catastrophe that the COVID vaccine was in particular. It's come out, uh, I think Dennis Rancourt is his name. There was a prominent researcher this past couple of weeks um, has come out with a well-known presentation and a paper. And this paper basically proves that 17 to 20 million people were killed uh, by this shot. And they, we know that they were killed by the shot and not by a viral epidemic. And in fact, his research shows that before the shots came out, there was no increase in all-cause mortality. So if you just measure, there, were there increased deaths above a normal amount in the period when we were supposedly in the thick of the epidemic, when COVID was supposedly killing all these people, and what it, the data shows that there was no actual epidemic, despite all the branding and the hysteria. Now, there were novel symptoms going around other than just the flu. Particularly, there was like a widespread thing where people were losing their taste and there were people who were falling ill. But what's interesting is that a lot of those symptoms can be explained by other causes. And this is true of every viral epidemic. There never was an isolated virus. The tests that they were running were not actually measuring a virus. It was all a fraud. Based on junk science, one of the possible causes of the illness is uh, the rollout of uh, a 5G program. Of course, there could be many other things. Uh, you know, in Chinese medicine, there was a prediction uh, using their astrological means uh, that there, you know, there are these cycles of epidemics. The epidemics are coming, they're more like metaphysical in origin. Um, and they have to do with cy- like world cycles and, uh, and sort of the, me- the, the metaphysics of how energy moves into form moves into the body. So there was a prediction that there would be what was called a wind. I can't remember what exactly it was. I think I did an episode on this a couple years ago, but like a wind deficiency or something like that. I can't remember what the the specific terms are, but um, 
what I'm getting at is there were multiple ways that you can analyze an epidemic of sickness that's not a viral epidemic because there actually are no viruses. So every epidemic uh, needs to be reframed to find the true causes of it. But Dennis Rancourt is proving that the uh, the COVID epidemic, there never was a viral epidemic with increased deaths. Uh, the, the deaths were initially all caused by the response to it. And that was part of what was getting the hysteria up was that the... the uh, the psychological response, the lockdown that was causing a certain amount of the deaths, but also the, the remdesivir and the respiratory things that they were putting people on who were having problems with breathing, that was killing people. So that was getting the death numbers up. It was actually the treatment that was causing it. It was not never a viral epidemic in terms of that was causing a mass death uh, outbreak. It was bad treatment. Same with AIDS, the AIDS epidemic. And, and so what he shows is that these, these huge spikes in death occur right when the initial shots came out and when the boosters came out. And we all know like th there were mandates around the world, but there w you did have an opportunity. You might have to sacrifice your job, but there was an opportunity uh, for most people to get outside of those mandates if they really refused to. The problem with the new WHO preparedness treaty is that they, they may uh, take all the steps that were originally taken in 2020 to a whole new level. Like the mandates could become mandated at an international level and we're talking about uh, mandates of vac regular vaccines, but also this uh, gene therapy, quote unquote, this sort of like real dark black magic almost type of injection that's the substance of the mandates, uh, the COVID vaccines. So there weren't actually vaccines, there were these like gene therapy, uh, sort of M mRNA gene altering shots. Uh, and so anyway, this WHO pandemic treaty, it's like, in my view, we're looking at like the final solution quote unquote like a lot of people uh, are you know think about the final solution in terms of the uh world war ii and the holocaust and the germans and stuff well this is actually the final solution for this who initiative this pandemic uh initiative in terms of global health tyranny because this is forcing a last stand essentially and you know philosophically we can step back and we can reframe things and you know look at interesting patterns because you know philosophically not from a theological standpoint but philosophically like the, the extreme nature of these force injections uh, you know i've heard a lot of people uh, talk about how there's symbolism to the mark of the beast so to speak so when we look at the nature of evil and the nature of like satan from a philosophical point of view it's an interesting dynamic because this uh you know these concepts really go into not the idea that there's like a supreme evil being uh, but really that there's a battle within the human soul of the forces of evolution bringing us towards an awakening and then an increased awareness of the divine within ourselves and, and, you know, the higher self, so to speak. And then a force of negation that is also within us that is tied to, uh, on one hand, to negative karma from our past that we brought forth. So it, it confronts us in a way, both internally and externally, the force of negation and I've written about this a lot in the past. You go to my series on Buddhism, for example. I talk about, and particularly the series I did on mandalas. I talk about the symbolism of Fudu Mayo, which really represents Satan and Buddhism. But it's very clear here we're not talking about an absolute evil being, um, but we're talking about a, a sort of uh, initiatory device that is an aspect of our creation that we call forth out of our own sort of misguided beliefs and behaviors and actions so this being really personifies ignorance superstition and fear 
and to over to inspire us to overcome these shortcomings as part of our evolutionary growth towards the self, uh, food and myo at certain stages in our growth pattern, at certain initiatory points, uh, will manifest and confront us. And the way he confronts us is very much like that Harry Potter thing, where it's like your your evils will come and manifest to you out of this like closet. It's kind of like that. And so there are strong initiatory elements and highly symbolic elements to the way that this great evil entity, uh, sort of Satan, so to speak, but really actually this initiatory device is manifesting in the modern age. And so this is, uh, so this WHO pandemic treaty is really forcing this issue. It's forcing a confrontation with the shadow because uh, ultimately what we have to do is look at, uh, I mean, in terms of our, each of us will face this individually in our own way, but collectively we have to, um, Oh, this this encounter with the WHO is going to force us to uh, encounter and deal with the manifestation of the shadow collectively, which is really the um, the origin of it seems to be the U.S. deep state. Because when we look, rewind again, go back to 2020, it's the it's the deep state, so to speak. It's the military industrial complex, the shadowy elements of it that are involved with social engineering and um, that are involved with. Uh, a philosophy of eugenics is very tied to, to um, the aspect of the deep state that's involved with oligarchy. Um, this is going to be forcing a confrontation because this is a long building trend in human civilization that has been left unaddressed, really going back to the, to the Roman times. It comes through the Middle Ages and uh, it has manifested in different forms, but has never been successfully addressed. And even the founding of our country was not successfully addressed either because it lashed on to us after the founding of the country. And then we get the things like the Federal Reserve and the world cartel system. And so the confrontation with the shadow is really what these events are building towards. In a way, you can look at the situation with Israel as being also a manifestation of the shadow because the same deep state entity is the thing that's supporting this divide and conquer strategy in the Middle East and, and also dividing and conquering Europe from each other. Uh, Euro, I mean, Eurasia, keeping the various elements divided and at war. And, um, and so all these elements are coming together and suggesting that there's no way to deal with these crises uh, without dealing with the root cause of them, which is this manifestation of the shadow or the adversary uh, within America. It's the deep state. It's the heart of the U.S. empire. Well, I wouldn't say the heart because there's also this deeper technological aspect that's, that's highly secret. And I think the, the, the secrecy of the technology aspect, the secret science, is what has created this space. Um, it's created this po policy of compartmentalization and secrecy, and that has created this space within society for the manifestation of this oligarchical group to take on this, this sort of parasitic, cancerous growth. Because there's no checks and balances. Because to check and balance it would reveal the secrecy. And so that's another thing that this is uh, this whole uh, course of events I think are bringing us towards is a revelation of this uh, this deeper aspect that has the seeds of a, a, of a regeneration of society, which is bringing forth a true science of an either based science based on physics, but also that gives the key to health, science of health, uh, gives the key to psychology, and allows the decompartmentalization of science. 
It also changes the way we think about religion and allows the religion to become more dynamic because it'll be brought in with philosophy because philosophy, ideas of alchemy and things like that go into very intimately with this new secret physics that will hopefully be brought out. And so these are things that I see coming forward uh, and being brought to a head by current events. And so uh, just very briefly, I want to play a clip here. This is Brett Weinstein talking about the WHO and the implications of it and just how dire it is. I mean, it really is a, an, it's an in-game scenario. And so we, we, there's no more kicking the can down the road if this kind of thing gets passed because it will force a confrontation. You're either going to get the mark of the beast and go uh, along with the psychology, uh, which is a satanic psychology that's behind the, you know, the idea of eugenics and things like that. It's a very dehumanizing, uh, sort of self-destructive um, state of psychology that's within the human soul. But it's not the essence of human of the human soul. It's been built up over a period of time. You could even trace, uh, you know, elements going back to Atlantis. So this is a long building trend within the human soul that has not been fully faced and revealed. And so that's why it's the shadow. Um, and so there are elements of that within each of us. And so these course of events are going to bring out a confrontation within for each of us at our own individual level. But collectively, it will take the form of this this great uh, showdown with the, uh, the oligarchy and the uh, various instruments uh, within the military industrial complex, within finance, within corporations, and their domination of these critical areas of human civilization in terms of health, in terms of agriculture. Because if we leave this unabated, look what they're doing. They're shutting off agriculture. They're shutting off the energy. They're shutting off the, the key modes of civilization. And so this is uh, this is the confrontation that we face. And so let's play this clip uh, from Brett Weinstein real quick. What this document means is that the WHO, at its sole discretion, would like the ability to mandate information be uploaded to your immune system via vaccines, and I mean true vaccines, mm -hmm. or potentially the borrowing of your cells to produce materials that they were not built to produce, as in the mRNA vaccines, mm -hmm. or potentially included within gene editing, they are talking about a right to actually edit your genome that would be in the hands of the WHO through a binding piece of advice, a binding piece of advice. That means that your nation would be required to facilitate your genome to be edited or your immune system to be updated, even if there were very good arguments for not doing it. And frankly, the only argument you should need is that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. I don't want it, Yeah. right? Informed consent is sacrosanct. As I pointed out here, as we pointed out months ago, we literally hung seven doctors for violating this principle, even though it had not yet been codified. It's that clear. Yep. And yet here the who wants the power to force edits onto your genome or to force updates into your immune system. This is beyond insane. This could not possibly be more dystopian. All right. So there you have it. And in my Substack post, I will have a link to Brett Weinstein, who was just talking there to his conversation with Tucker Carlson, he goes into more detail about it. And there's also lots of good commentary from other sites. I'm sure you've by now seen discussion of this in some form or another. So yeah, like like he was saying, this could not be more dystopian. Like this is gonna force a showdown. And um, 
and there's so many other elements that are happening that are also forcing a showdown. So it's like we're moving into the final stages of a sequence of events that uh, have been set up really a long time ago, but in a series of stages have been moving towards an end game. Um, but again, you reframe it from a philosophical perspective and a psychological perspective. You know, this is really the uh, the blossoming forth, or maybe blossoming is a bad word, but the sort of um, metastasizing of a aspect of human psycho- psychology that has been allowed to fester because of secrecy and compartmentalization for a long time. And this is the essence of what the deep state is. It's a shadow government. It's a shadow realm of the government and has been gradually gaining more and more con- uh, control and deeper control over the various elements of uh, society and dominating the human mind and the human body here on earth in an an increasing way. And that psychology is one of evil in the sense that it embodies um, the spirit of negation. So, you know, the, the purpose of human life here on earth is to fulfill, to fulfill the law, to fulfill the law of evolution, but to fulfill the archetype of, um, of, our spiritual purpose here, um, which in philosophical terms is really the archetype of the Manu, which was planted here at the beginning of our, um, of our collective root race. And so, you know, the goal and the purpose of life is to fulfill. And so this is a spirit of negation that is, uh, threatening to entropically pull apart and dissect and prevent this fulfillment. And so that is the nature of evil. That's the adversary. And this is a, not an unexpected thing to encounter. I mean, on an individual level, in the mystery schools, each candidate would undergo this psychologically. Inwardly, you would go undergo an encounter with this adversary. And another uh, term for it is the dweller on the threshold. So before you, you reach that next level of, uh, you know, the next degree of initiation, you have to pass this adversary and the adversary is very tied into your own internal weaknesses and shortcomings. And so the, it manifests in this way that is very karmically tied to yourself. And so we can see that same dynamic taking place here. So there's this idea of a collective initiation. And so, you know, this is something that, uh, I mean, you guys, you guys been aware of this. It does seem very serious, but it's important to keep a philosophical grounding when we're analyzing these type of issues. And so this whole nature of the battle of evil uh, and battle against Satan is something I've been working on a lot lately. So I'll get into that in a second. Uh, you know, I, I originally, back when I was doing, uh, you know, a month or so ago and a little bit lo- longer ago, I was doing a lot of stuff on the Middle East. And I actually did all this research and I, ha- I just haven't had a chance to get into it. I plan to do a, a series on the Middle East and I just, I ran out of time to do it. And now I have new stuff on my plate, which I'll tell you about in a bit, but I just am not going to have a chance to do it. And I hope I, I get a chance to do something with the material at some point because it is important. And there, it, it does uh, get into some aspects that I have not seen in, in this sort of public debate about the long-term dynamics that are working themselves out today in the Middle East. So at the date I'm uh, recording this, which is on uh, the 25th of January, still Gaza's under siege. Uh, it seems clear that Israel is trying to work out some sort of displacement program for the Gazans uh, to, to not displace them, to, to forcibly immigrate them into another region. 
And so where that's going to be is unsure, but, you know, a lot of people have been evacuating or been forced to evacuate, and they're clearly making, uh, or probably at this point I've already done it, made Gaza uninhabitable, so there's no going back, and there's no really solving this issue. Now the question is, what is the larger region going to do about it? And, uh, and so the next front here is, the, is Yemen, because Yemen's the one area where uh, a sort of counter-response has been enacted and an effective one because they've been shutting down and causing uh, a lot of financial problems with the Red Sea. You know, my question is how much of this is, is being social engineered because that's a very, you knew this, this would happen the longer that the assault on Gaza was permitted to take place and America is financing the whole thing and funding it. And so they, you know, they're, you know, my feeling, and I've said this before, I feel like they're using Israel and, you know, the, the leadership class of Israel, I mean, there's no going back really from, from where they are now. And so public opinion has turned so strongly against them that we'll just have to see what ends up happening, what the next stage is. You know, it seemed for a while like it was going to be a larger war, but um, there has been obviously uh, tremendous hesitancy among the other Middle Eastern powers to, despite the public outcry to, to move towards war, uh, there has been hesitancy to do so, obviously, because really only Yemen has taken action. And there's been a, a lot of stuff that's been done to deliberately provoke Iran, for example, by Israel and by the U.S. Um, and so in terms of like adjacent activities that have been going on in Iraq, assassinations of leaders and things like that. And so things at one level seem to be a standstill, but they're so co so com Things are so so combustive in that region that you never know what the next big event that could set something off. Um, but again, ultimately, to solve this issue is the same thing to solve the WHO issue. You have to look at the driving force, which is the U.S. military-industrial complex and this secret class of oligarchs and war strategists and uh, an element of technocracy that is looking to drive events uh, in a certain direction. So I want to get to some of the, just briefly touch on some of the research I did on articles that I'm not going to be able to get to. I wanted to write, do like a longer series, but I just am not going to be able to. Um, so the first one was going to be called Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood and the CIA. And it was going to go back in time and look at the, uh, look at how is the religion of Islam has been manipulated from by outside forces into this, the orthodox um, sort of anti-progressive form that it is today and it's, uh, so you know the, the whole basis of this is the um the strategy uh for eurasia which was first articulated by a british journal named mackinder but then most people know of it from zbigniew brzezinski in his book the grand chessboard but the idea is that uh, originally for britain and then america inherited the strategy that in order to preserve their empire world empire you can never allow an alliance of nations across Eurasia. So particularly the middle Eurasia and the Middle East had to be separated from Europe and then also separated from Russia and China. There could never be an alliance between these. And so if you look at the consequences of the Ukraine war and the consequences of Israel's actions in Gaza is that it's, um, it's growing the divide between Europe and Russia and Europe and the Middle East. 
to some degree. Not completely, because there's still lots of business being done. But I mean, at least in the in the eyes of the, uh, uh, or at least in terms of like a clash of civilizations type of thing. There's a lot of resentment against um, the not the European people, because the European people are against the Israel situation, but. The governments are fully funding it. Like Germany is completely a simp for this cause, for example. You know, other countries, not so much. But overall, the EU is supporting this. And uh, definitely towards America, there's a lot of resentment. So anyway, the the basic strategy for America since the beginning and from Britain and other powers with interest in the oil economy of the Middle East, which is everybody, uh, was to divide and conquer the different peoples against each other. And one of the ways to do this is to um, promote a radical form of Islam that prevents the progressive development of these countries uh, because to do so, those countries would naturally want to take ownership of their own resource. And uh, But a militarized, orthodox Islamic uh, government is beholden to U.S. interests because... The U.S. interests are the ones that are supplying them with the money and the weapons they need to preserve their own power. So this is an old scenario. You see the same thing in Latin America. But uh, in particular, one of the groups that was founded was the Muslim Brotherhood and it has many branches over the years. So the Muslim Brotherhood goes back to like the 20, 1920s. And so this is this very radical group is kind of the one that when we think about jihad and things like that, this is like the godfather of those kind of movements, that kind of psychology within Islam. Uh, not, not, so, not necessarily that they invented it because there's elements of this that came before, but Muslim Brotherhood was d- definitively a Western finance creation, even going back into the 20s. And so they, uh, they had many branches that have been utilized by the CIA and things like that. Um, and they've been involved with not only directly promoting it, uh, the sort of orthodox Islam, but indirectly, you know, they kind of set the, uh, they set a, a certain standard in the Middle East that um, that other countries had to match in a way, uh, even who that wanted to avoid the Muslim Brotherhood. There was just, they impelled a larger motion towards um, a sort of Islamic governed, Islamic law based society and uh and for for different reasons that was in the interest of the west and so uh, a lot of my research was based off this really good book i recommend it's called the lost hegemon it's by f william ingdahl who i cite a lot of my work and this he goes into the history of the muslim brotherhood and the various branches of it and how they were involved in all these really horrific civil wars not only in the region of the middle east but also uh in if you remember in the 90s there were all these conflicts in uh in central sort of like western uh, central europe but like west of russia like old old states that were part of the former ussr there were all these uh conflicts there and really brutal ones and uh and all these different cases you find the cia financing the extensions various extensions and descending groups from the muslim brotherhood the most famous one being al-qaeda and osama bin laden and so all this ties into the history of hamas because hamas is one of these group one of these offset groups from the muslim brotherhood so from the beginning we have western intelligence behind hamas and one of the things i was talking about in my series that stuff that i've done on israel and hamas situation is that hamas is actually as is relatively well known now as a secret asset of Israel, but also, you know, Hamas has this history of being an, an asset of the CIA as well, because 
they're tied into this whole uh, Muslim Brotherhood lineage. And so, so I wanted to tell that story in part because it does tie in certain, uh, or does get into certain existential questions about what is Islam or what is the future of Islam? Because we look at the current state of Islam to a degree that a lot of Muslims probably don't uh, appreciate the nature of the Islamic religion and the way that it's practiced now is this kind of retrogressive uh, tendency within Islam is, you know, has the hands of their own enemy within it. As in a secret level, the Islam that we find in a lot of parts of the world today, this political Islam, militarized Islam, is a creation of the very enemy that they're sworn to fight against. So it's this complicated dynamic, but it does suggest sort of existential crisis within Islam, like what does the future hold for Islam? These, these questions about the history of Western involvement in Islam and the Islamic world, how it's been really utilized as a tool for Western imperial interests, it does uh, ask uh, certain questions about what is Islam. So I also had a Manly Hall lecture that I wanted to get into that goes into some, some of the cool esoteric sides of uh, Islam that I think are, need to be re rediscovered. And uh, in order to bring a more philosophical light, I think certain elements of the golden age of Islam need to uh, be appreciated once again. You know, Islam was in its golden age when Europe was in the dark ages. And it was very much a uh, bastion of scientific thought and, and sort of philosophical thinking. And so there is much, uh, you know, there's a lot of promise and opportunity here for a great leap forward in terms of bringing philosophy into the Middle East and, and bringing uh, a type of wisdom and intelligence that is not so orthodox tied to a, a sort of theocratic view of society and and the uh, uh, just a, a way of evaluating life and the meaning and purpose of life. So that was sort of the, the purpose of that article. And uh, unfortunately, I never got a chance to write it. I have uh, plenty of research, though, to support it. I have, let me see how many pages. I have about 50 pages of research I was working with. So anyway, that was going to be one of the articles in the series. Another article was uh, going to be the twin of this, and it was going to look at Zionism as also being a political creation of imperial interests. Now, a lot of people look at Zionism, they think that they're running the empire. It's my feeling that that's not the case. It's the opposite. And so, you know, my working theory is that in the age of science and technology and empire, those mixing together, the control of knowledge and science and technology really defines who wins wars in this age. And your ability to mobilize a modern, you know, advanced bureaucratic war machine. That in, in this age, religion, religious belief becomes something that is a highly ideological, ideological approach to religion, such as we were just discussing with Islam that that becomes ripe to be weaponized and to be undermined by a more scientific-minded approach. So, so if you're looking at religion in terms of psychology and as a resource to be manipulated, then you can, uh, you can undermine religion because re religion uh, is not able to think as dynamically about the modern techniques of war. And so, and you know, so... So when we look back at uh, the idea of the founding of Israel and the founding of the Zionist movement and the involvement of things like the Rothschilds, you know, I'm not in a position to say what the religious beliefs are of that family and, and uh, similar oligarchical interests who were behind that. But one thing I do know about the Rothschilds is that they were the primary banking house of the 
British Empire. And, uh, and also a very influential family in the rise of American Empire. Not as influential as the Rockefellers and the, uh, the Morgans, but, um, but still involved uh, in a big way. And one thing that happened, and this is something I tracked in my Secret History of the 20th Century series, is that the, the rise of the steam engine and the, the, pet, the petroleum-based uh, transportation economy that began to develop in the, in the begin, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, that before that had an effect on the economics of uh, larger society, that had a big effect on the nature of war because it, it made war this mobile thing. Like the new, the new armies could move across terrain in a very fast way, in a dynamic way. And you could have planes and things like that. And so the need to modernize the economy was really driven by the need to modernize the army and the military. And so that need confronted at the same time Germany, Britain, and America. Like the major powers of the day, Western imperial powers. And so they all, even though they were in conflicts at certain periods, as we know, in the world wars, uh, the oligarchical interest, the corporate interest, the banking interest in those companies were very much working together to take control of the, um, the oil, to, to basically engineer their own domestic societies to become oil dependent. And that would help promote uh, oil dependent, the, build economies of scale to promote a oil-based military. Um, and so, the, but they were all sort of working together, but also in, in competition, but they were all involved in these dynamics in the Middle East in terms of militant Islam. And they all were in a way also involved with the rise of Israel. You know, it seems like that everybody had a common interest in preventing the rise of a, of a Islamic caliphate in the Middle East to rise against the West. You know, flashbacks of the Crusades, old karma from the past playing itself out. But there, there was, seems very much an interest to sabotage the development of the Middle East among all the different powers of the West. And the rise of Zionism and the creation of the Israeli state after the war became this crucial component of that alongside the rise of the things like the Muslim Brotherhood and the separation of Sunni and Shia and uh, various other sects uh, of Islam against each other, and, and sort of these existential blood feuds, you know, arising. These are common uh, divide and conquer strategies that were implemented. But the 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 rise of Israel is definitely involved in that engineering operation to move the world onto this global oil economy. So anyway, the article I was working on was looking at this idea of Zionism arising as a sort of militant Judaism in the same way that the Muslim Brotherhood arises as a militant Islam. So it's, it's a, you know, we have a re extreme religious ideology funded by outside interests. And, you know, I can't speak for those individual interests, how much they had their own beliefs and faiths about uh, the sort of second coming of, of the Messiah and like the need to fulfill certain biblical and Old Testament prophecies in the Middle East in terms of Jerusalem and a war against Islam and things like that to bring about this Messiah. There does seem to be elements of that playing out, but my feeling is that the driving force is not religious in nature, even though that religion aspect is an element of this, but 
that the religion aspect and these beliefs are really being driven by this scientific uh, approach to war and to control. And so, because we see this scientific approach to war and control being played out in all these other sectors of society. And so things, uh, you know, and like I was saying earlier, when science meets empire and technology meets empire, nothing is sacred. Anything that is considered sacred is just a, a means to manipulate. And so, so anyway, that's what I was going to get at in this uh, article on uh, Z- going into the history of Zionism, the rise of it. And also, I wanted to talk a little bit about how that, some of that's playing out today. Like Whitney Webb had an interesting article a couple years ago about Christian Zionists in America and, uh, and sort of an alliance between them and the Jewish Zionists and this sort of secret, you know, this sort of uh, agenda to try to play out a type of biblical prophecy to bring about a series of circumstances that will bring, you know, basically their interpretation of the apocalypse, which precedes the coming of the Messiah. And, you know, on on a weird level of archetypes, even though I don't think that this religious motivation is the actual driving force, like I said, it's an element, but I think the scientific side is a driving force, but archetypally, it may end up that those stages end up playing themselves out. Like it may be part of the scientific technocratic agenda to, to drive things towards this end state. And even on a deeper level, philosophically, psychologically, there could be archetype within the collective unconscious that is moving in this direction. I can't say for certain. I want to talk more about that when I have a more, uh, firm grasp about what I want to say about it. But, um, you know, there definitely are groups, uh, that are involved with the military industrial complex that do seem to have an ideology of wanting to drive, you know, society towards a world war three as, as the preface for what they believe is a necessary series of stages that have to come, um, before the Messiah can come. So anyway, this whole idea of, uh, Zionism as a political militant Judaism being paired with its inverse, uh, which is the Muslim Brotherhood as representing the Taliban and things like that, representing militant Islam, that both of these forces are set against each other uh, by Western imperial powers, um, you know, partly for scientific, technocratic, social engineering purposes. And there also does seem to be some kind of ideological component uh, that's part of a very unphilosophical, highly theocratic reading of uh, religion. But in some way, this archetype is uh, does seem to be moving towards a state of fulfillment. Um, you know, there does seem to be a, a deeper archetype about the uh, great death rebirth ritual that mankind is going through. There does seem to be archety- archetypal dynamics at play, but I'm not an expert on exactly what is going to happen in the future but you know i hope to refine my view over time and like i said uh a while back i don't know if i've mentioned this recently but one of the reasons i was doing all this work on current events is to build up material that i'm going to be using in the very last um series i want to do it's not the last series overall i'm going to be doing on philosophy and the work of manly hall but i kind of originally pictured this 10 arc series that starts with the uh, Atlantis material that uh, I was doing and then moves finally up to current events and looks at uh, an astrological prophecy of this moment in time and looks towards the future. 
And a lot of the work I did in these other series, talking about the Kali Yuga and, and these larger motions that might be playing out and coming to a head today, informs that. But I wanted to go into particularly a work of Manly Hall's that looks at the uh, the great year and the motion of Pisces into Aquarius and what, what are the key time points in that uh, that grand motion and what it tells us about the nature of trends that are set to take place uh, in the coming decades. And so we can we can read a lot and learn a lot from that uh, analysis that he did. And I'm really excited to get into it. I just haven't had time to get to it and start break ground on it yet but all this material that i was doing is in some way going to be building up because when you look at the the key themes that he talks about they map to these various things that we're talking about today in terms of these uh the current events that we're discussing and i also want to point out about a year maybe a year or two years ago i can't remember exactly when it was um, I did an analysis of, of one of Manley Hall's lectures that was called The Secret Destiny of America, or something like that. Maybe it might not have been exactly those terms, but it was a Manley Hall analysis. But in the first 20, 25 minutes of that episode, before I get into a breakdown of his lecture, I talk about how there was interesting articles coming out about America having a Pluto return. And what that means is that in America's horoscope at the date of its founding, Pluto was in a certain position, and then... It takes Pluto like 270 something years to go full circle around and revisit uh, that initial point in the chart. So that's called a Pluto return. And so when you look at astrologically, what does a Pluto return mean in terms of uh, in terms of an experiential archetype, like what plays out during a Pluto return? It has to do with a death rebirth. A situation and things uh, kind of bursting forth from the unconscious and the shadow being revealed and things like that. So very, very on point to what's happening in America today. And that is a very relevant thing to look at uh, and to also factor in when we're looking at like analysis of current events. So uh, then after the uh, or alongside these two articles I talked about, one with Hamas and one about Zionism, I also had uh, an article I was going to just overview some of the practical geopolitical motivations behind Israel's um, and uh, and not just Israel by itself, but the U.S., CIA, Mossad, the sort of like transnational intelligence cabal, you know, the oligarchy. Um, the, what some of the, the possible drivers are for this the, Israel's actions in Gaza. And we've heard about the Ben Garion Canal from some analysis. I hope you've tracked that. I think I mentioned that before. But the idea that there could be a very uh, lucrative and substantial alternative to the Suez Canal being built through Gaza, um, that's one possible thing. There's also oil and natural gas reserves and the... Uh, you know, discovery of very lucrative um, drilling sites off the coast of Gaza that uh, I'm sure Israel would like to claim for itself. But, you know, the, the thing is, like I have alluded to many times, like Israel's actions are, have been so drastic and public opinion has turned so drastically against them that it's hard to imagine a future for Israel just with no consequences for this. Um, but we'll have to see. I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Like it, it would, it does. It, it did seem like maybe it would have set off a war by this point, but that hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean that events couldn't still be engineered to bring about that. But it's hard to know for sure what uh, the future holds or how this situation is going to play out. Um, 
so anyway, I was going to talk a little bit about that. And, uh, and I wanted to end with a discussion about something I've also talked about before, which is like, what are the implications of the Great Reset for these for Israel and for these possible aims for, you know, its involvement in uh, allowing the 10-7 attack to occur and then engineering this counter-response. So it clearly wants to take control, it wants to excise the Gaza population and take control of the land. And the whole thing about like Hamas as an existential enemy is is the cover story for this. But we've, we've known, like I discussed earlier, that Hamas has been a secret asset of Israel for a long time. So they uh, leveraged that asset as part of a, a, a big uh, sort of final move um, with the 10-7 attack and with its response. So how does put the possible motivations of Israel's ruling class and, and sort of the West who are financing and funding it, also funding Ukraine, like how do these moves, which are very, we know for sure at the, in the short term, these have to do with trade and the idea of a, of a new Middle East, for example, and the idea of cutting pipelines and sort of using, uh, in the case of Ukraine, cutting pipelines from Russia to the West and engineering relationships there and, you know, engineering trade and economic relations and energy and things like that. We know that there are key elements that are motivating factors for the U.S.'s behavior in those regions, but how do these things ultimately interface with the Great Reset? Because if we're moving in mass, uh, if we're going to move in mass away towards a new par- energy paradigm, away from you know standard fossil fuels and things like that, well, I shouldn't say fossil fuels because they're not from fossils, but carbon-based f- fuels, then what does that have to, you know, like... How does that interface with these uh, stated motivations or sort of obvious motivations for what is going on geopolitically in Eurasia at the moment? And so these are uh, critical questions I think need to be uh, discussed. Um, so yeah, wh- what does the Great Reset mean for Israel in the future? U.S.-Israel relations, for example. Does it make Israel, uh, does it make the Middle East ripe for change because we don't need to dominate, we're not running the petrodollar anymore? We don't need to dominate that region in the same way that we used to, can't afford to anymore. It's also impractical. And um, and so if Israel's leadership regime, the sort of Zionist regime, it was put into place in order for them to play their part in creating this divided Middle East, then, you know, if we move away from the energy paradigm that the, the Zionist uh, regime was sort of the face of enacting this divided Europe to protect the petrodollar, then what is that spell for the future of Israel? And what need does the U.S. have for Israel? These are important questions. I haven't seen as many people as I would have liked to uh, talking about this because I think it's, I think it's one of the key key pieces. I mean, we obviously have the great reset happening in terms of climate policy that are shutting down energy and things like that in Europe, shutting down the food supply, you know, forcing these migrations up into America and uh, all kinds of things are going on with the Great Reset. So that seems very real. It just seems it is. It's like this is moving towards an end state where it's no longer deniable. Like big moves are going to be happening probably 2024, but definitely going forward from from this year. So what what does that have to do with this situation in Gaza and and what does that future hold for it? What does it suggest for Israel? This is an important question. And worth asking. So that was going to be the series of articles that I was going to do in the Middle East. And I just didn't get a chance to get into it. And uh, maybe in the future this will come back around. I'll have a chance to revisit 
some of this um, because I think all three of these are very important and, and uh, I would have liked to done more with it. But what ended up happening is that my attention has you know increasingly turned towards this question of the philosophy of Satan, the philosophy of evil, and the idea that it's it's something within human psychology that's being triggered now. And it's manifesting in all these outward forms. But uh, it's kind of like what I was alluding to a minute ago with the America's Pluto return, this idea of a Pluto confrontation with the shadow as part of an initiatory event, uh, a dweller on the threshold, you know, the idea of mankind moving towards a global government, a new energy paradigm revealing itself, this sort of very secret technology world, uh, underground world in America, responsible for UFOs and stuff being gradually re revealed and externalized. You know, this is the promise of, a, of a, a, a totally different way of civilization coming forward. So before those that breakthrough is reached and we're, we're not and civilization takes a, a major leap into a new paradigm there's a confrontation with this evil from the past these re repressed in you know aspects of ourselves and th these repressed aspects are playing out all over the world in terms of but particularly acutely in america in terms of these uh very significant crises that are going on and uh and also this whole situation with the Great Reset and the psychology of the people who are promoting that. It's very materialistic. It's very anti-human. Um, it's very sort of worshipping technology and uh, worshipping, uh, you know, it, you know it, it, it's, it's a state of mind that is, is oligarchy sort of meeting its natural ends. In the scientific age, it's sort of running up against this technocracy but the technocracy that's arising out of the oligarchy and is being maneuvered into place through the World Economic Forum, through the Great Reset, is a very compartmentalized science. It's a very uh, materialistic one that's built on insecure foundations. Uh, and by that, I mean it's, it's built on a false paradigm of materialistic science. And the, that materialistic science paradigm that is, it's, that is informing these people that when you read about them, like how they envision the future and what they see as desirable is that they have a very narrow mindset of the universe. It's very unphilosophical. It's very unspiritual. If you, if you listen to someone like Yuval Noah Harari, you really get a sense of what I'm talking about. Like this is like the height of a materialistic mindset. So, um, so that is the product of secrecy and compartmentalization within science by this very deep entity that's involved with secret science, secret technology, UFOs, etheric energy. I talked. I've talked a lot about that on my channel. Uh, you know, the central thesis of my book on the 20th century is the interplay between oligarchy, which goes back pre-scientific age, goes back to the Middle Ages, this go, goes back to Greece and Europe and, and you know, before that, the classical civilization. And so that's an old pattern and an old state of psychology that is now really running up and meeting its end state, in my opinion, as we move into an increasingly scientific age. The need for an actual science that's uncompartmentalized is now and a technology energy technology and the tools to deal with these crises are needed very intensely at this current moment but before we can get those access to those we're having this confrontation with oligarchy attempting to spread its tendrils over the world and and centralize control by means of things like the great reset and um you know the move towards a central bank digital currency with the bis bank of international settlements and things like that um, 
so these things are moving towards a, a, a point of no return and a, a conflict, uh, a final conflict. And so this is really a state of, you know, the oligarchy mindset is, is the thing that drives that is a state of psychology. And so when we're looking at the, the nature of uh, psychologically what's going on, philosophically what's going on, uh, we, we have to consider the nature of evil and the nature of this idea of, sat- of Satan. What, what does Satan personify and embody? It's really a lot of the behaviors that we see in the world. But So, you know, what, is, what does uh, Satan mean philosophically? What does Manly Hall say about the nature of Satan? And what is, how does Satan dif- differ from Lucifer? These are things I'm, uh, I've been working on and researching increasingly. And so what I'd like to do coming up is a, a series uh, on that, a, a series of articles and uh, start first starting off just looking at some of the, the, the diagnoses of the fact that we do have this state of psychology gaining increasing possession over the leadership classes of the world and driving them towards, a, towards self-destruction. So we're talking about something that's personifying negation. That's what really philosophically we mean by uh, Satan, you know, the devil, so to speak, is that state of, state of psychology that causes humanity to, to, do, to negate itself. And um, and then addressing this idea of the dweller on the threshold, the fact that, you know, the initiate uh, talking about humanity as a whole, the, the, the human, the whole human soul collectively is this one great initiate that is collectively moving through Earth as a temple of initiation. So, you know, we have this great collective confrontation with this state of psychology that's within ourselves, but that needs to be confronted and overcome. So that's the fight with the shadow, so to speak. And so I think that's the mo- most important thing to work on. And so this actually brings me to some exciting news, which is that I recently um, got a new job. And that's part of the reason it's not possible for me to finish all these series I was working on. Because, you know, the past since 2020, I've just worked on this full time. And I financed it all through just savings and selling assets and then building up debt. And so I'm, I was at the end of the line of being able to do that. I was going to have to get a job, you know, probably, you know, waiting tables or something like that uh, to try to regain like some financial balance to be able to pursue this. But that was going to cut it way into my time doing this anyway. So I basically reached a point where I couldn't keep the channel going, keep the podcast going in the form that it was anyway. And then right at the right at this like critical moment, I got an opportunity to come and work for a well-known public figure. Uh, I won't say who it is yet, but I will soon, um, as part of his publishing company, to work on some book projects that he's doing. And then you know potentially uh, there's a chance to amplify some of the work that I've been doing and get it to a larger audience uh, through him. And so I'm really excited about this opportunity. Um, so I've been working on a book. Uh, that he's working on that is going on in his way, uh, in his words. I'm going to be having some input now, but it is on these very topics, this idea of a, an inner confrontation with this force of negation within yourself. And so uh, I'm going to be working with him on his book on that and then hopefully also developing more and sharing with you guys at a pace that I can make you know, realistically because now I'm working on all these different projects at once. Uh, but I would like to gradually put putting out some material on this uh, confrontation with Satan philosophically, the philosophical confrontation with the adversary, so to speak, and what that means. And uh, this is obviously something I've talked about a lot. Like I said, you go back to my series on mandalas. You can talk about, look at that uh, 
whole discussion about food and I.O. You can also see this discussion in the series I did on America in terms of the confrontation with uh, Tezcatlipoca and the difference between uh, Quetzalcoatl, who represents, represents the enlightened mystery schools or the enlightened adept, uh, going against the sort of evil dark magicians, which is, in a way personifies the WEF and this whole ruling class that the oligarchy that exists today. You know, they had their corollary in sort of prehistoric American society uh, as this uh, entity, the sort of dark priesthood of Tezcatlipoca. And so I discussed this idea of the shadow there. Um, I discussed it to some degree in my, my series on the history of the 20th century as well talking about the oligarchy and uh, a lot of the stuff I talked about here today, um, the, some of the precursors were discussed, you know, the, the rise of eugenics mindset and things like that discussed in that series on the 20th century, which at some point, again, when I get time, I'm going to re-edit it and put it out as a book. And uh, I'm going to do the same thing with all my series. It's just time is short for me right now, time and energy. Um, but I'm very excited about this new... Um, this new job I have, this new, new, this new collaboration opportunity with this, uh, this very prominent person who I, I respect a lot. I actually reached out to him a couple years ago, try to, uh, to, to, to maybe get on his podcast or get, uh, you know, get a connection with him back. This is when I did my series on psychology and Carl Jung. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's hard to get contact. I, there's a lot of people I've reached out over the years to try to connect with and have a, you know, there's a low success rate with that kind of thing with email and stuff like that. But the stars aligned and this connection came through right at this critical moment when I was going to have to go back into the restaurant industry, which I was really bummed about because I thought I could make this work financially. It wasn't happening. And then boom, I get this like really dream opportunity um, to really scale the impact I think I can make with the work that I've been doing and with these ideas and with Manly Hall, you know, being the primary inspiration to sort of scale his reach and um, and his ideas, you know, trying to serve as an ambassador for him in a way is, is one of my goals. Uh, and so I am very excited about this. And so, yeah, my focus is, unfortunately, I couldn't finish the Middle East series I wanted to do. I'll give you a preview of it today, but... Uh, the more pressing thing, maybe some of this will tie into the, what I think is more pressing thing, which is this confrontation, this philosophical confrontation with the adversary and to build off some of the work I've done before with this idea of the shadow, which again, I also discussed at length in that depth psychology publication. Please get that copy of that on my website. If you haven't got it yet, it's really good. I'm proud of it. Um, and it does have this whole section on the fight with the shadow from Carl Jung's point of view. And there's this case study of world war two in Germany. And I look at the astrological alignments of 2020 and how those constellate with these ideas of shadow projection and uh, looking at, uh, I also have this like cool timeline of events, looking at the relationship between Pluto and Saturn and these sort of like deep state uh, events going on. And then obviously COVID was a deep state event. It was the, you know, the, the military, it was run out of the U S military industrial complex. So, um, so this is one of been the key, this has been one of the key themes of my themes of my work, and now I'm working on a, you know, getting a chance to work on this this new book uh, by my my new boss slash collaborator, and I'm really excited about this. I think that he can re reach a big audience with this uh, his new his new book, and um, it's kind of done in a personal way. It's going to be able to reach a a larger audience than the kind of work I do is more like scholarly, and it's more 
I think of it as more of like a master's PhD level kind of thing. So it's, you know, ultimately I would like my work to, to, to resonate and be able to make a big impact with those who are more, uh, not necessarily the, the average common person, which I do want to meet, but the goal for me is to really meet the, uh, the more like intellectual world, the scientists, the academics, the policymakers, and to be able to, if I can bring their thinking in alignment, you know, the, the, the executive management class, the, you know, the CEO class, the people who are really uh, involved with building the world. If I, can, if I could reach the world builders, the ones who are interested in, uh, involved with building ideas, the thought leaders, and if I could have an influence on them, like a large swath of them, then that way you can really scale your impact. And so, um, and those are the types that have the most, uh, the, the most necessity to go into the kind of detail I go into. And so, um, so, so this, the, the, the series I want to do is going to be, uh, on the philosophy of Satan is kind of going to be working, uh, adjacent with this new project that I'm working on, which is more for a general audience, I think, but it's going to be very good and I'm excited to be a part of it. And, so that is kind of what I'm focusing on now. I want to do it intermediately with this. I recently had, uh, I want to go back and do some more Manly Hall lecture analysis. I, I've kind of gotten away from that and I want to get back into it. He has one on uh, on the topic of Armageddon. I think I'm going to be the first one that I want to be getting back into. But I've been listening to some, kind of picking out which ones I want to, want to go through. And then once I do a few more, I'm going to go back and, and print out transcripts of all the ones I've done so far. And I would, I would like to do a book of... Um, of my like lecture breakdowns, like the transcripts of key quotes from these lectures, and then my commentary on them, because there's no, uh, there's nothing like that for these these key lectures. So, um, so anyway, I, w- I would like to do that. So anyway, that that's uh, that's the the crux of where I'm at right now, as of uh, January twenty fifth, twenty twenty four. This is what I've been working on, and and. You know, this is why explaining some of why I haven't been able to produce some of the content that I was earlier talking about getting to. I wish I could have done this whole Middle East series, but it just wasn't possible for me to do uh, with the time constraints and all these various projects and stuff that I've had. So, uh, so with that, I'm going to uh, conclude this episode. Thank you, everybody, for being a follower of the channel and for a follower of my work and. Um, I'm looking forward to bringing you great content in the future, whether it's on this podcast or whether it's through this new opportunity that I'm working with, this new job. And I'm excited to see where that could go. And I'm excited for the opportunity to be able to reach a larger audience potentially and to reach some influential figures, maybe. Uh, you never know. But um, yeah, I, you know, I do feel like this moment in time is sort of a. Uh, like you know the four years of work i started this 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 uh podcast in 2021 and uh i guess officially i did my first ones at the very end of 2020 is when i launched it and and so it's been like a bit of an arch getting to this point i have kind of i was kind of building an audience i i kind of hit a point where i basically recently was kind of stagnating where i i had a you know loyal uh listening listenership following but my weekly download numbers have basically stayed the same for almost you know a year and a half and i and i I never have been on a major interview show 
And that was a point of disappointment for me. I was out of hope to be able to promote some of the work that I've been doing. Um, and I'm really excited also to be working with this new opportunity because I'm going to have a chance to meet with a lot of like-minded people. I don't get to do that very much other than like the, the nice emails I get from you guys uh, and some of the interviews I've done with great guests. Um, in person, I, I almost never get a chance to talk about any of these, these, this stuff. Like the people in my, my friend group, my family group aren't interested in it. Um, and so it's going to be a real treat to be around like-minded people who are as passionate about philosophy, but also the, the state of the world and making a positive impact on the world. And so I'm really looking forward to that opportunity and that chance to, uh, grow, uh, my network and to not, you know, be stuck alone, uh, in my apartment working so much because there's only, you know, you can do that for a while, but it takes its toll. You know, I feel like it's, it was starting to take a toll on me all the isolation um, that it took to, to make all this content and to put all this work out. Like I wanted to do it. I chose to do it. Um, it was necessary, I feel like, but it's also not something I could sustain forever. And so, yeah, I'm definitely, this came at the right time, you know, this new opportunity. So I'm really excited about it. Um, so you'll be hearing more about that coming up hopefully you'll see me on some some new podcasts but i'll be uh you know finally as a guest on some hopefully you know through this new opportunity of this new gig uh, a job i should say um I, i'll have a chance to uh meet new people and maybe get on some other podcasts and and spread the uh the the teachings there and spread the the mission of philosophy and this idea of the, the great need to revitalize philosophy as the key element the missing link in our age and uh, definitely the missing ingredient to successfully overcome this fight with the shadow. Um, so yeah, the timing is ripe for these teachings, I think, to reach a larger audience. So I'm really excited. And um, yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in. God bless. Uh, once again, this is Alex Sackin with the Wisdom Tradition Podcast.